Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to 1 Samuel 14. 1 Samuel 14, title of the message, Faith is the Victory. We'll be looking at the first 23 verses of 1 Samuel 14 today, trying to um, get through all of that and, and apply it to our lives in a meaningful way. Last week in 1 Samuel 13, we considered the dangers of Christian pragmatism through the example of King Saul performing the burnt offering before a battle rather than waiting for Samuel to do it as Samuel expected and as the Lord had commanded. Saul had no right to give of that burnt offering. He had no right to um, usurp the authority of the man of God in doing so and he had done wrong. And as we looked at all of this, we kind of glossed over a second topic, another consideration regarding Saul's actions when compared to the actions of his son Jonathan. Perhaps you remember in chapter 13, Saul had only 3,000 men, a mere maintenance force, no intention of picking a fight with the Philistines, no intention of um, going against them in any meaningful way, and, and that's clear by his actions, that he was uh, perhaps afraid of them, perhaps um, just passive. We, we don't really know exactly what was going through his mind, but what we do know is that he had no plans to remove the Philistines from the land of Israel. Jonathan, on the other hand, wasn't thinking this way, was he? Jonathan, far from having no plans to remove the Philistines from Israel, said, well, wait a minute. So here's the thing. If God has promised us to, to give us victory over our enemies, then let's go do this. And he went and he smote a garrison of the Philistines, the scriptures tell us, and um, this effectively picked a fight with the nation. So now this fight is picked with uh, the Philistines, and Saul is in trouble. So he tries to call the people together, and as the people are coming together, uh, a huge fighting force, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and men that could not even be numbered come from the Philistine nations to fight against Israel. And we left Saul and Jonathan last week in, in a, a deeply precarious situation, materially speaking. Samuel had left because Saul had done wrong. So Samuel returned to Gibeah. He, didn't, he, he wasn't there. He wasn't a part of this. And that 3,000-man fighting force, uh, much um, opposed to it growing through uh, Saul's call for help, is now shrunk down to just 600 men. And it's not just that the fighting forces of 600 men, in fact, 600 men, and there were only swords in the hands of Saul and Jonathan because all of the blacksmiths um, were, were Philistines. There were no Israeli blacksmiths. The, the Philistines did not allow anyone in Israel to become a blacksmith for this very purpose so that they couldn't make weapons. So there were no weapons in Israel. There were only 600 men. And um, Samuel wasn't with them. And it's just a really terrible situation. Well, what we're going to see today, however, is that really none of that mattered. Physical circumstances don't really matter at all. We're going to learn today that as followers of the living God, our lives do not need to swing upon the hinges of material and physical advantage or disadvantage. That God is able, apart from our own efforts, apart from our own strength, apart from our own talents, even apart from our own failings and blind spots, to prosper us and bless us and use us to do great things to the glory of His grace. 
But we're also going to learn that in order to tap into God's strength and blessing in our lives, we have an obligation as well. That God responds to faith, true and humble faith in Him. That God is able, but God's power is best served through those who obediently trust His Word. So so today we're going to see a, a dramatically different scenario than the one we looked at last week. We might say it this way, we're going to see a dramatically different outcome than the material circumstances seem to indicate. And as we do so, we're going to learn some very important lessons. In the most desperate moment of Israel's history, when the king's pragmatic solutions had completely failed, the king's son, a man named Jonathan, will choose a path of faith and find indeed that faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Look with me if you would in First Samuel 14 verse 1. Now it came to pass upon a day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said unto the young man that bears armor, Come and let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he told not his father, Jonathan, Saul, 600 men are encamped. Three garrisons of the Philistines, uh, Philistine spoilers, the scriptures told us in first first uh, Samuel 13. Three garrisons of these spoilers had gone out to systematically and methodically um, cut off supply lines, uh, discourage Israel, confuse them, whatever it might be, lower the morale in the Jewish camp. And Jonathan says to his armor bearer, let us go over to one of these Philistine garrisons. But he didn't tell his father. Now this is the second time that this has happened. Jonathan's first rogue operation is what got them into this mess to begin with, right? His first rogue operation is the one that caused the Philistines to get upset and that caused the Philistines to amass a very large army to come against Israel to begin with. And now we have this second rogue operation where Jonathan in a situation which is even worse than before, they're surrounded and they're outnumbered, decides to go and to fight a Philistine garrison. So Saul is over there fretting, saying, we're in a mess, how are we going to get ourselves out of this mess? And Jonathan, much to the contrary, says something to the effect of, finally, we've got him right where we want him. Finally, the entire army is together. Finally, we can defeat our enemies in one grand battle. So Jonathan is going out to engage the enemy. The situation in the Israeli camp is described in verses 2 and 3. The Bible says, And Saul tarried in the uttermost part of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migran. And the people that were with him were about 600 men. And Ahiah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people knew not that Jonathan was gone. We have mentioned already the 600 men with Saul at Gibeah, and the scriptures tell us that he sat there under a pomegranate tree in Migron. Now, uh, it's interesting that the text is this specific about it being a pomegranate tree in Migron, but um, as we think about this, this shouldn't throw us too much. If you were to uh, become uh, deeply familiar with the Old Testament and, and even some of the, the Gospels, you would find that trees play a very important role 
in Jewish thought and in Jewish history. Uh, this may have been kind of based upon or, or, or begun through the reality that it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that caused Adam to fall, that um, it was the tree of life that had to be guarded in the Garden of Eden. Uh, but trees take on a, a pretty strong significance. Uh, we could go through a list and talk about the different trees and, and their significances in Scripture. We see the cedars of Lebanon, uh, which oftentimes uh, indicate strength and wealth. We uh, see a fig tree, which is very typically uh, a, a sign of, of Israel. And uh, Israel would see a fig tree as almost representative of their nation. And, and olive trees used as a picture, a picture of God's spirit-driven election and spirit-driven purpose, His empowering people for a purpose. Oak trees used to speak of longevity and knowledge and wisdom. Palm trees describe peace. And the pomegranate tree typically a symbol of beauty and of righteousness. All of that to say that um, a pomegranate tree here, it would have been a, a well-known landmark. And as the, the uh, writer sought to describe these circumstances, uh, he would have been in, uh, on solid ground knowing that as he describes this pomegranate tree, people would know what he was talking about. And this area in particular, it would seem, was elevated, an area where Saul would be able to survey Oh, you might say the battlefield or, or um, consider his options well as he sat under this pomegranate tree. Now verse 3 tells us that Ahiah, the son of Ahitub, the son of Phinehas, was now the high priest in Shiloh. And this harkens our minds back to much earlier in the book of 1 Samuel when we considered Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Now, um, Remember that Eli's uh, two sons and Eli died on the same day, uh, a day probably about 30 years, maybe a little bit more earlier than the point that we find ourselves in 1 Samuel 14. About 30 years earlier, the day that the ark was taken, the day that they used um, the ark as uh, tried to use it as their lucky rabbit's foot, and as it turns out, that was unsuccessful. And Hophni and Phinehas are killed. The ark is taken. Eli hears that the ark is taken. He falls back. He's a fat man, so he breaks his neck when he falls back in his chair. And then the scriptures tell us that the wife of Phinehas, when she hears all of this, goes into hard labor. And she ends up bearing a son. And uh, she calls his son the son's name Ichabod. And Ichabod means no glory. She says, because the glory of Israel has departed from this day, not speaking necessarily of her husband or her father-in-law or her brother-in-law, but speaking specifically of the fact that the Ark of the Covenant had been taken from Israel. So that's Ichabod. But Ichabod was not the eldest brother of Phinehas. Um, the, the eldest brother of Phinehas was Ahitub. And um, Ahitub... Uh, if you consider, if you consult your genealogy that I gave you at the beginning of the book, Ahitub would have been Phinehas' son, and then Ahiah would have been Ahitub's eldest son. And Ahiah is the one who is now the high priest. So um, we don't we don't fully know why Ahitub didn't spend very long in the high priesthood, as it would seem. Maybe it's just that that mark where. Um, Ahiah became 30 years old, and so he took over, uh, and Ahitub was getting to the end of his um, years of service, which was typically from 30 to 50. Uh, we're not exactly sure of all of those, those details, but what we do know is that Ahiah is serving as the high priest, 
And um, this is still the lineage of Eli. And, and again, if you look at your genealogy, you will find that it's not really until the days of, of David and, and specifically Solomon that um, Eli's line is completely and irrevocably removed from the high priesthood in um, faithfulness to God's prophecies that Eli and his family would be removed from serving the Lord. Now, no one knows that Jonathan is gone. And in verses 4 and 5, uh, we see Jonathan leave the camp. Scriptures tell us, And between the passages by which Jonathan sought to go over into the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on the one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sina. The forefront of the one was situate northward against over against Michmash, and the other southward over against Gibeah. So you've got uh, one rock northward and one rock southward, and uh, they are between a ravine, a ravine that is called today Wadi uh, Suenet, and um, this would have been um, a, a, rav- a ravine that separated, uh, at least in part, these armies. They were a bit farther away. They were about two miles away, the encampments. But it would have separated them um, as far as militarily is concerned. And you can see the picture on the screen behind me uh, is of this ravine. And you can get some idea of what jo- Jonathan would be dealing with here. It was rocky. It was tall. Um, it, it was um, not exactly um, a, a, a very wide ravine necessarily, uh, but but wide enough. And, and Jonathan takes, uh, or the, the scriptures take care here to describe these two rocks. We don't know where these two rocks are. If you were to look at maps, you would see uh, perhaps some of them label Bozes and Sina, but. But as you see them labeled, you would also see that there's typically a question mark next to them because nobody really knows. Some say it was at the very mouth of the ravine. Others say it was in the midst of the ravine. It's just hard to know because the scriptures don't tell us. Josephus, in his history, takes extra time to speak about um, this particular encampment of the Philistines' garrison and where they were. He describes the encampment as a precipice that had three tops ending with a long, sharp tongue and protected by the surrounding cliffs. Uh, it's sufficient for us to know that um, the area where Jonathan was, was going to go up to this garrison uh, was very rocky, and the garrison was, was well protected. Uh, it was a very strategically advantageous area where they had found themselves. And, and Jonathan and, their, and his armor bearer find themselves in this ravine, at the bottom of this ravine, looking up at this Philistine spoiler encampment. And Jonathan reveals his plan in verses 6 and 7. He says this, Come, and let us go over unto the garrison of of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said unto him, Do all that is in thine heart. Turn thee, behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. If we were to summarize his plan, it would be something like this. He looks at his armor-bearer and he says, Look, God is bigger than any army. God doesn't need anyone to do his work for him. Israel is God's chosen people. That's why we see him call them the uncircumcised. And and uh, we see him making an emphasis here about the fact that they are not God's covenant people, the Philistines. That the Philistines are not 
um, those who have received the promises and the blessings of the Lord. And then he says, we are God's chosen people. They are not God's chosen people. As a matter of fact, they are enemies of God's chosen people. And if they're enemies of God's chosen people, then they are enemies of God. And because God is not restrained by physical or material limitations, he can save us, and he can save us by many. He could save us by 30,000, or he could save us by few. He could save us simply by Two, God doesn't seek armies, Jonathan is saying here. God seeks obedience. God doesn't seek strong men. God seeks men of faith, men of strong faith. The only thing limiting God's power on behalf of Israel is the faithfulness of those in Israel. And Jonathan's desire is to step out in faith. And if it would be God's will to allow God to use him to defeat the enemies of the Lord, his armor bearer effectively says, I'm with you, do whatever you want, I am with you to death. And so they go together, and Jonathan reveals his tactics in verses 8 through 10. He says this, Behold, we will pass over unto these men, and we will discover ourselves unto them. If they say unto us, Tarry here, we, uh, until, or excuse me, tarry until we come unto you, then we will stand still in our place, and will not go up unto them. But if they say, Thus, come up unto us, then we will go up, for the Lord hath delivered them into our hands, and this shall be a sign unto us. So Jonathan's plan was, we'll stand at the bottom of the ravine and we'll call to them. And they'll look over and they'll say, oh look, a couple of Israelites. And if they say, you stay there, we'll come down to you, then we'll stand in our place. And the implication here seems to be that, that they would not go through with this battle, that they are feeling out the Lord's will, and if, if, if that, the Lord's will is is uh, not that they would fight this battle, then that's when uh, they would know it by the Philistines saying, stand here or uh, let us come down to you. Now, why they would stand and not run, uh, I, I'm not sure. And, and that kind of makes you think, well, maybe he's saying, we'll just dictate where the battle is fought. However, the final phrase here in, in verse 10 that they will go up for the Lord hath delivered them into our hands seems to indicate that Jonathan is looking for that indicator, that that um, divine knowledge of whether or not God is going to deliver them, whether or not this is God's will. And uh, so it does seem to be a test, and this is not a wrong thing. When we talk about um, um, tempting God, tempting God is when you don't believe God can do something, and so you ask him to prove that he can, or you don't have faith in God, and so you ask him to prove himself before you will have faith in him. And that, the Bible says, is wrong. But Jonathan here is not tempting God. He, he has full faith that God can and will work. What he's doing here is he's seeking to discern the will of God. He is asking God to make it clear which way they should go. He wants God's best. He doesn't want to lean to his own understanding. He wants to acknowledge God. This is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not into thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Jonathan is seeking to acknowledge God here and asking God to direct his path. So this is not wrong. This is not Jonathan tempting God. This is not Jonathan uh, not exercising faith. This is simply Jonathan saying, if, if this happens, then we'll know that God wants this. If, if, if something else happens, then we'll know that God wants that. And that is entirely appropriate. So verse 11 says that they discover themselves uh, unto the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines say, aha, the Hebrews, they've finally come out of their holes. 
that they where they've hid themselves. They're mocking Jonathan, and they're very self-confident here. And they have no concern over Jonathan and his armor-bearer being there. And verse 12 says, The men of the garrison answered Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up unto us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said unto his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord hath delivered them into the hand of of Israel. And so here we see that test come to fruition. Uh, these men are very proud. They're not concerned. They say, you come up to us and then we'll fight with you. And Jonathan says, perfect. This is fantastic. They've been delivered into our hands. Now, <laughs> verse 13, notice this, says that Jonathan climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer slew after him. So to get up to the top of this ravine, Jonathan and his armor bearer have to use their hands and their feet. And, and so this is steep enough that he had to put his weapon away. He had to, to, to put himself in the most defenseless position possible and climb up the ravine. And if this doesn't show a man of faith, I don't know what does. He says, the Lord has delivered them into our hands, and so I don't need to have my sword in my hand when I get up to the top there. God has already chosen to deliver them. Uh, I know this. We've already proven this. We're ready to go. By faith, he's climbing with his hands and his feet. He's getting up there in, in a defenseless way, and he gets to the top, and the scriptures tell us that he just begins fighting, and he begins slaying them, and his armor bearers behind him. I don't know how it worked quite. Um, maybe Jonathan with the sword, the armor bearer with the spear, or whatever it might be, but either way, um, they're, they're just taking these guys to task. And verse 14 says that the first slaughter, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, was about 20 men, within, as it were, a half acre of land. Which is which a yoke of oxen might plow. So in about a half acre, twenty men are dead. Jonathan and his armor bearer took care of them. And as we think about grand battles in the scriptures, this isn't perhaps the grandest as far as scale. Um, one or two men uh, uh, defeating twenty. You think of David's mighty men who speak about slaying six hundred and and slaying four hundred and and such. And, and and so this isn't perhaps one of the the greatest battles in, in, in that regard, but in the same way that God does not um, need many or few uh, to win his battles, God does not need many or few destroyed in order to strike fear into the military. Uh, and, and notice verse 15, we see this fear. Verse 15 says, And there was a trembling in the host, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison and the spoilers, they also trembled and the earth quaked. So it was a very great trembling. Now the text does a pretty good job of distinguishing here the idea, the difference between the people being fearful and the earth shaking, both of which happened here. The first couple of words trembling there in our King James imply that the people were afraid. And then the um, word here quaked, meaning to shudder, to disturb, speaks of the earth shaking. And this would have uh, um, greatly decreased the morale of the people. They were very afraid, and the earth began shaking. Uh, what was this earthquake? We're not quite sure. Perhaps it was just a, a great earthquake, and the Lord has been known to do that in the past. It may also be that this was um, a a mind game that the Lord was playing with the people. Uh, if, if you were to uh, hear 
30,000 chariots going through a ravine, uh, there would be a great earth shaking. Uh, you're talking about one or two horses per chariot, so um, 30 to 60,000 horses pulling these chariots uh, on top of the 6,000 other horses. Uh, as they would have gone through any particular area, there would have been earth-shaking movement there. Now, if, if they look around and they say, our chariots aren't moving, our horses aren't moving, and yet the ground is quaking, it is perhaps that the Lord brought into their minds a fear of a great army that had surrounded them and was coming against them. Maybe that's it, or maybe it was just a true earthquake. Whatever it was, it confused the host of the Philistines. It terrified the host of the Philistines. And the scriptures tell us, in verse 16, the watchman of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they went on beating down one another. So Saul's watchman sees this, the earth begins shaking, and the scriptures tell us that they, the Philistine army, started attacking itself. And this is why I would believe that that idea of maybe the the ground shaking being a, a, a the feeling of chariots and horses surrounding them would make sense because uh, then in their mind they say, ah, someone's attacking us and they just look around at the people around them and they start killing them. Now the Philistine army was made up of at least five kingdoms and so they wouldn't necessarily know everybody. A uh, 30,000 chariot army footmen like this, the, the uh, an innumerable number of footmen, they don't know everybody. So they just see people and they begin fighting them. And, and and so the Philistines are now killing one another. And the scriptures tell us that the watchman sees this and he sees the army melting away. Literally people just running in every direction. And verse 17 says, Then Saul said unto the people that were with him, Number now and see who is gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul surmises that something happened here. Something something is going on. He says, number the people, see if everybody is here. And so they number the people, only 600, it wouldn't take long to do so. And they find out that Jonathan and his armor bearer are gone. And you can just kind of visualize in your mind's eye the, the eye roll that Saul gives here. Oh no, he must be thinking. He's already picked the fight with the Philistines and now here he is picking another fight. He's gone off again. And what am I going to do with this kid? So, verse 18 says, Saul said unto Ahiah, that would be the high priest, bring hither the ark of God. For the ark of God was at that time with the children of Israel. So, Saul says, I need counsel. I need to know what's going on here and I need to know what to do. I need rescuing. Perhaps he thinks that the Philistine army is ready to move. They're gonna, Jonathan went and he picked another fight and if it goes like the last fight, then they're gonna get really angry. And so, um, they're gonna kill Jonathan, kill his armor bearer, and they're gonna come up against me. I need the ark to be here and the ark begins coming. But the scriptures say, And it came to pass while Saul talked to the priest, that the noise that was in the host of the Philistines went on and increased. And Saul said unto the priest, Withdraw thy hand. So Saul here um, is, is about, he's talking to the priest, he's consulting, and he's ready to consult with the Lord, perhaps the Urim and the Thummim, uh, with the Ark of God there and such. And he says, well, wait a minute. The, the, the sound is not decreasing. He would have expected Saul or Jonathan and his armor bearer fight, they get killed, whatever it might be, the people are angry, they, they re-collect re themselves and they, they now come against Israel. But that's not what happened. What happened is not just a continuation of the noise, but it got louder. It got more intense. There was a greater and a greater battle going on. And Saul says, well, never mind the consulting of the Lord thing. 
he that sounds just like Saul. Never mind that. Let's just go see what in the world is going on here. Verse 20 says, And Saul and all the people that were with him assembled themselves, and they came to battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was a great discomfiture. So Saul and the 600 men come, and they start looking at what's going around. And all of the Philistines are killing each other. Notice verse 21, Moreover, the Hebrews that were with the Philistines before that time, which went up with them to the camp of the country round about, even they also turned to be with the Israelites that were with Saul and Jonathan. So Saul jumps into the battle with his 600 men. Jonathan's already there, um, taking people out, and, and his armor bearers there too, presumably. And the scriptures tell us that the, the Hebrews that were there with the Philistines, now these would have been slaves and servants, those who were taken by the Philistines for one reason or another, that they jumped into the battle and began fighting for the Israelites as well. And then verse 22, Likewise, all the men of Israel which had hid themselves in Mount Ephraim when they heard that the Philistines fled, even they also followed hard after them in the battle. So all of the people who had ran and hid themselves, who had gone over to Gilead and Gad and uh, hidden rocks and in caves, um, they came out as well, em emboldened by the victory that the Lord was delivering to Israel and came and fought as well. And verse 23 kind of sums it up and says, So the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle passed over into Beth-Avon. The Lord saved Israel that day. Not Saul. Saul was sitting under his pomegranate tree in Megrin. Not even Jonathan. Jonathan was simply a tool. There was no way one man could do what happened that day. Rather, the scriptures say the Lord saved Israel by a mighty hand. By a miraculous hand. In response to the faith of one man who was willing to trust the promises of God. And as we apply the scriptures today, that's what we're interested in. That's what we're going to talk about. Three points in our application. The first point, God is unrestrained in His capacity to provide, to bless, and to deliver. Second point, God is not unrestrained in His willingness to provide, bless, and deliver. Finally, God is faithful, but we shouldn't push Him. Point number one, God is unrestrained in His capacity to provide, bless, and deliver. Joshua said in verse 6, There is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. Last week we considered the dangers of what we call Christian pragmatism, a problem which likely have touched us all in some form or fashion. But on the testimony of God's Word, God is absolutely unrestrained in His ability to accomplish anything in this world according to His sovereign will. This point can be heightened by example, but it really needs no explanation, does it? Jonathan perhaps thought back to the days of Egypt before the battle that he commenced in. Perhaps he thought back to the days when God led the nation of Israel through the Red Sea. No hope of defeating Pharaoh's army. Pharaoh's army was pressing against them. God leads them through the Red Sea on dry ground and then completely and utterly decimates the Philistine army in the Red Sea. Jonathan perhaps thought back to the days of Gideon. Gideon, a man who began his fight against the Midianites with 32,000 men. Gideon had amassed an army of 32,000 men to fight the Midianite army. And God tells Gideon this in Judges chapter 7, verse 2. The people that are with thee are 
too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, My own hand hath saved me. God said, If if I send you into battle with 32,000 men, Israel will have no problem in believing that they are actually the ones who won this battle. I don't want that, God says. I don't want Israel to think they won the battle. I want Israel to know I won the battle. Gideon reduced this army. Gideon says, okay, we can do that, and begins a reduction process. You say, well, yeah, maybe knock 2,000 off, 30,000 men. Maybe knock half off, 16,000 men. God says, nope, keep, keep going. Keep going. When all is said and done, Gideon goes into battle against the Midianite army with just 300 men. And the scriptures tell us that Gideon fought that battle and the Lord defeated the enemies of Israel through those 300 men that day. God wanted all of Israel to know that He was the one who was going to win that battle. God is unrestrained in His capacity to provide, bless, and deliver. This essential conviction that God is not restrained in any capacity is essential to every facet of the Christian life. In the realm of finances, do you know that God is not restrained to provide for you by a job or by the economy? In the realm of health, do you know that God is not restrained to heal you by the limitations of doctors and medicine? In the realm of provision, do you know that God's capacity to give you a roof or clothing or food is not limited to your resources? In the realm of relationships, do you know that God's capacity to knit your marriage or to knit your family together is not restrained by the attitudes of those that are in your family? In the realm of church, do you know that God's ability to grow and to bless a church is not restrained by that church's capacity to fit in or to use a proper market strategy? In the realm of ministry, do you know that God's ability to use you to bless others is not restrained by your abilities, by your talents, by your fears, or by your resources? In the realm of evangelism, do you know that God's ability to use you to lead another to Christ is not restrained by your temperament, is not restrained by your capacity to express yourself? We walk through this life and as followers of the living God, we conform ourselves to the very same fearful faithless shackles that the world conforms itself to. This is this is that idea of Christian pragmatism. We look at the things around us and we say, well, this is just the way it is. I'm not talented. I don't have this. I don't have that. So I cannot. I don't have the money. I don't have a job. I don't have this. I don't have that. So I cannot. I need this. I need that. Or things cannot work out for me. We take the world upon our shoulders and rest our happiness, rest our contentment, rest our provision, rest our perception of success, rest whatever it might be upon whether or not we can measure up to what the world expects. And this is exactly what Saul was doing. He was sitting under his pomegranate tree and he was wondering how he was going to save his people. He was wondering how could he inspire the people to return and fight? How could he get weapons into the hands of his army? How could he overcome 30,000 chariots? How could he lead Israel to victory? All the while there was a God in heaven who desired to bless Israel, who desired to just deliver this battle into their hands, who desired to give them complete victory. He was not simply waiting for their king to to uh, gain the 
the strength to do what he needed to do. He was simply waiting for the king to fall down in faith and trust that God could do it for him. So we understand that God is unrestrained in his capacity to provide, bless, and deliver. However, while he's unrestrained in his capacity, we find that he is not unrestrained in his willingness to provide, bless, and deliver. There are things that can hinder God's willingness to do these things in our lives. You know, there are Christians all around this country who understand intellectually God's capacity to do great things. But what they don't understand is that it takes something from them in order for God to do many of these things. There are two primary reasons why we would say God becomes unwilling to bless His people. And the first reason is sin in the lives of God's followers. The second is faithlessness in the hearts of God's followers. In Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, the Bible says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid His face from you that He will not hear. Is it any surprise that God's people do not receive the things that they ask for, the things that they need when they are walking in sin against God? If we're walking in selfishness and pride and lust and covetousness, is it any wonder that the blessings of the Lord are far from us? And I'm not talking about a health and wealth here. I'm not talking about the idea that if if we're doing right, if we're not sinning, then God is going to give us a bunch of money and a bunch of this and a bunch of that. You, You know that that's not what I'm talking about if you've heard me preach. What we're speaking about here is spiritual blessing. What we're speaking about here is that kind of life lived by faith where we're not anxious, where we're not worrying, where we are seeing our needs met, where, where the Lord is, is clearly guiding our steps, directing our path. When you look at a, a family and they may not have everything, but they're okay with that. And when they, when they have needs, you say, well, there's no way that they're going to be able to meet that financial need. And then through prayer, the Lord provides for them. It's not that they've got money pouring out of their house and, and, uh, and the banks are bursting with, with, with their funds. It's that they have what they need. And we look at them and say, wow, they are blessed. They're not blessed because they're rich. They're not blessed because they have perfect health. They are blessed because uh, it is quite clear that they have the ear of the Lord. That when they need something, they lift their need up to the Lord and the Lord provides. And that's what we're talking about here. But you know, if, if, if we're living in sin, then what do we expect of the Lord? Maybe the Lord has provided for us the money that we need. But we took that money and we blew it on things that we don't need. Maybe the Lord has provided for us what we need. But we're so deeply in debt that we can't use the money that He's providing for us for anything but to pay off the debt that we've incurred in our lives. If I'm lazy, if I'm negligent, if I'm racking up a ton of debt, if I'm not using my money appropriately, then it's not that the Lord is not willing and desires to provide. It's that I'm wasting His provision. If I'm a poor steward of my health, I can't expect the Lord to keep me healthy. 
if I'm going to pump substances into my body, if I'm going to be a glutton and eat, uh, eat uncontrollably without temperance, I can't expect the Lord to then turn around and give me perfect health when I'm not doing my part. If I'm not going to step out in faith and trust the Lord, then, then I'm going to take everything upon myself and I'm going to work a hundred hours a week to try to get the money that I feel I need because um, that's the only way that I perceive that I'm able to do it. Then, then what is the Lord? Uh, he's restrained. Examples could go on. In the church setting, it would be inconsistent for me inconsistent for me as the pastor to seek the power of the Holy Spirit in my ministry when I deny the Spirit through my philosophies and methods of ministry. If I do things selfishly and sinfully and then to seek the power of the Holy Spirit, it's not going to work. Saul was a self-righteous man. He sought God's blessing, but he sought it pragmatically. He went his own way thinking that God would save them because he could save them, but it didn't work, and it didn't work because Saul sought the Lord in sin. The God of Israel says, it's not that I cannot hear, it's not that I cannot save, it's that your iniquities have separated between us so that I will not do what you've asked me to do. So the first reason is sin in the lives of God's followers. When we're living in sin, when we're living in a sinful way, unrepentant, unconfessed sin, can we really expect the Lord to pour out His blessings? Second, faithlessness in the hearts of God's followers. And this is more to the point of this morning's message. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith happens when something you know or believe affects your actions. When something you know or something you believe uh, begins to work itself out in your life. We might say that faith is belief in action. The illustration is given of a tightrope walker. And that tightrope walker uh, develops a crowd who, who love to watch him walk across ravines and waterfalls. And one day he's walking across a waterfall and he gets back and people clap and are amazed at his skill. And then he gets a wheelbarrow and he, he takes the wheelbarrow across and, and back and people are amazed. And then he fills that wheelbarrow with sandbags, hundreds of pounds of sandbags. And, and he takes that across and people are amazed and he looks at the crowd and he removes all the sandbags and he says, now how many of you believe I could get you safely across in this wheelbarrow? And everyone raises their hands. Oh yes, we've seen it. We're amazed. You're, you're so skilled. And he says, all right, who is ready today to jump into this wheelbarrow? And every hand shoots down. You see, they know it in their minds. Yes, this man can get me across, but they're unwilling to put their money where their mouth is. They're unwilling to put their body at risk. They believe he could do it, but they don't have enough faith to act on their belief. And that is what faith is, belief in action. God looks for, in every avenue of life, men and women who are willing to get into his wheelbarrow. Now, of course, this first step of faith in every man's life is stepping into the wheelbarrow, if you will, of salvation, recognizing that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, that no man comes to the Father but by Him, that we are sinners, that there's no way we can get ourselves to heaven, that we are condemned 
uh, in the sin of unbelief because we have not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God and that if we will confess with our mouths the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. And if we do not accept this salvation by grace through faith, then we will end up in a place of eternal torment called hell and eventually the lake of fire. And so the scriptures tell us all of these things. And if you put your full faith and trust and you commit yourself to them, as Hebrews 6.1 says, repenting from your dead works and placing your faith in God, then you will find yourself redeemed, justified from this eternal punishment. And you will find a new life in Christ, not through your own efforts, not through anything that you have done, but solely through what Jesus Christ did when he purchased your salvation on the cross of Calvary. There's many a Christian in the world today, a so-called Christian, the pseudo-Christians, many people that call themselves Christians who have their hands high saying, yes, I believe that Christ can, can get me to heaven. But what they've never done is they've never gotten in the wheelbarrow. They've never actually committed their lives to Christ. These are those that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have I not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name done many wonderful things? And he will say, Depart from me. He will say, Excuse me, I, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. But faith is not just something that happens at the beginning of your relationship with Christ, is it? Faith is your Christian life. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, The just shall live by faith. You know, Hebrews 11 verse 6 tells us, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. First John 5, 4 says, Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Faith is the essence of that which pleases God. Faith is the essence of, that, of what it means to be a follower of God. We could use the same examples that we used in the last point together. Uh, we could talk about money. We could talk about family. We could talk about health. God doesn't want you trusting in money to secure a happy, healthy life. God wants you in the wheelbarrow of His provision so that whatever He provides is what you're content with. And as you place your full faith in Him, you don't have to fret over finances. You don't have to wonder if you'll have money. If you lose your job, you don't have to wonder if God's going to provide. You don't necessarily have to have plan A, B, C, and D financially because you know that you serve a God. Now again, this is not that you don't have to be careful. This is not that you don't have to be prudent. God uses jobs. God uses savings. God uses these things as a means by which to provide for you. But if you don't have them uh, for circumstances apart from your own um, desire, or your own will, or your own efforts, that's okay. Because God doesn't need those things to provide for you. Yes, God normally provides through jobs and savings and such, but He doesn't need them. And we don't need them either. When we're faced with the fears of not being able to provide through customary means, or when we're asked by God to perhaps give money to someone above and beyond what we would be comfortable with um, because it, it dips into our savings, it dips into our plans, it dips into our, our um, means of, of carefully planning for the future. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we have the opportunity to exercise faith. To trust that God will provide for our needs. To trust that if I don't have a job, I can just keep looking and He'll provide one in His time. And He'll provide for my family. 
in the meantime. We've all heard the stories of men and women who receive the anonymous check in the mail. We've all read the missionary biographies of missionaries who have prayed for specific needs and God has provided abundantly above what they could ask or think. And what we need to understand is that this is not intended by God to be some sort of mystical, um, unique way of working. This is intended to be the norm. We should expect as believers that God will provide for us. It should not be a, an anxiety issue, a fear issue, a, 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 a way off in the distance issue, a maybe God would work this way issue. It ought to be a, oh Lord, I see that I am, I have a need. I'm going to lay it at your feet and I'm just going to trust that you're going to provide and I have no fear that you will because you've said you will. That's faith. God can provide money. God can heal illnesses. God can mend relationships. God can bring people to a church. God can provide for a church. He can provide a building. He can provide land. The list could go on. God doesn't need us for these things. In Psalm 20, verses 6 and 7, the psalmist wrote this, Now know I that the Lord saveth His anointed. He will hear Him from His holy heaven with the saving strength of His right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Too many times we, like Saul, convince ourselves that if we don't have the chariots or if we don't have the horses, then we simply can't win the battle. I don't have a job, so I can't. I don't have insurance, so I can't. I don't have blank, so I can't. But when these things, which are not bad, jobs and money and insurance and such, when these things become our security, I can tell you this definitively, our faith is not where it should be. Let the world trust in money. We'll trust in God. Let the world trust in their retirement funds. We'll trust in God. Let the world trust in their governments. We'll trust in God. Let the world trust in their business models. We'll trust in God. And all the while, we as God's people can boldly declare, but I will remember the name of the Lord my God. We won't fret, we won't fear, and the world will marvel because all that they have, all that they've fretted for, all that they've worked for, all that they've, they've tried to get through, all of their um, careful, self-sustaining means is also granted to the believer. Now, we're not going to be the rich, wealthy ones necessarily, but we'll be cared for. We'll find provision and contentment even without the kind of worldly ambition that often drives men to despair. And what are ways by which we're able to demonstrate this faith in God? We ask. Three ways that I want to present to you this morning that demonstrate this kind of content, reliant faith in God. First is prayer. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Patiently and faithfully asking God to meet your needs. Truly laying them at His feet so that you no longer carry that burden. That's how you can demonstrate faith. God, I have done everything I know how to do. I've done right before you. I have obeyed your word and served you faithfully. I'm still lacking, so now I'm just going to trust you. The second is contentment. Philippians 4.11 Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. 
whether it's money or health or church attendance or whatever, if you're doing what you know to be right, be content with where God has you, and that's faith. And then the third is first fruits. I put this one in there. Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10 says, Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruit of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and presses shall burst forth with new, not, new wine. The first fruits principle indicates that God desires us to give back to Him in faith a portion of what He's given to us. And whether we talk about money or whether we talk about talents or whether we talk about whatever it might be, when we give that back to the Lord in faith, trusting that the Lord will then continue to multiply, uh, you'll find amazing things come to pass. Again, it's not to say that if you give the Lord the first fruits of your paycheck or the first fruits of your time or whatever it might be, that this means that He is going to um, make you rich or or, or make you uh, extremely successful, though it's possible. But what, what it does is it shows God that you are relying upon Him. It's a visible manifestation of your reliance upon Him. And God responds to faith. That's what we're seeing today, that God responds to faith. Though God's capacity is unlimited, uh, unlimited God's willingness to provide is limited by perhaps in our lives, perhaps by our own faithlessness. But one last thing I want to mention before we move away from this point, and it's very important, so listen. We've spoken of God's blessing and provision, and there's no doubt that these promises are real. Jesus promised His followers in Matthew 6 that if we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, food and raiment will be added unto us, that the things that we need, the necessities of life, will indeed be added unto us. But when it comes to what we perceive as blessings of this life, we might say, when I talk about the Lord blessing and providing, I'm not talking about you having a Corvette in your driveway. I'm not talking about you having a six-bedroom house. I'm not talking about those sorts of things. We are not health and wealth oriented in this statement. That's not what, what, what this means. That's not what this is about. And, and the scriptures um, clearly state that, that uh, wealth and riches are not a default. The, 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 the default results of faith in God. You know, perhaps it is that you're ill. You sought first the kingdom of God. You've done right. You're not in sin. You have faith. You believe that God can provide and yet you're sick. And it might just be that this is where God wants you. You say, well, I thought God w w was going to take care of His children. Of course He is. He's taking care of you. And this is where He wants you. And if this is where God wants you, then it's not a punishment. It is a blessing. It is God's provision. It is what God has chosen for you. And if it's what God has chosen for you, then it is His best. You may not have much money because God doesn't want you to have much money. That doesn't mean God's not blessing you. It means you're right where God wants you and that's a blessing. A church may be small because God wants the church to be small. It doesn't mean that if a church is small, it's because they don't have faith or there's sin or God's not blessing because that's what God has chosen for them. That is a blessing. Not every perceived difficulty in this life is traced to sin and faithlessness. Much of it is traced to God's will for them in that time and in that place and for that reason. Joseph spent years in prison. Moses spent years in the wilderness. Daniel was thrown into a den of lions. Peter was imprisoned. Paul had a thorn in the flesh which he besought the Lord thrice to to depart from him. And in Second Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7-9, through 9, God's response was this, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. 
God said, I want that weakness in your life. It's a blessing given to you to remind you of me. If you're going through a hard time, of course you always search your heart and life for sin and for faithlessness. God, am I not doing something I ought to do? God, am I being lazy? God, am I wasting my money? God, am I not eating well? Why are these difficulties coming upon me? God, am I fill in the blank? But if you have found yourself to be in a place where you're not sinning before God, God, do I not have faith in you? Am I not trusting you to provide for me? Am I trying to work so hard in my own effort that I'm, I'm falling short of trusting in you? If you found that you're not there either, well then, maybe it is that this is where God wants you. So we as believers can't judgmentally look at others and say, well, we are that this way because of sin or faithlessness. Or they are that way because of sin and faithlessness. These, this message this morning is not intended to flame the fires of our hypocritical judgmentalism. Looking at others and saying, aha, this is why they are the way they are. We can't say that. We can't know that. Unless there's obvious, open sin or faithfulness, faithlessness in their life. It may be that the most comfortable and the most wealthy among us are the least faithful. That they've pursued the world's pragmatic philosophies to the end that they have received the blessings of the world. Which is money and power. It's not our purpose today to look outward and judge the circumstances of others. It's our purpose to look inward and find those areas of our lives where we need to be exercising more faith, where we need to step out like Jonathan and do what we know God's Word asks us to do. So much more we could say, but we need to wrap up. Third and final point. First point, God is unrestrained in His capacity to provide and to bless and to deliver. Second point, God is not unrestrained in His willingness to provide, bless and deliver based upon sin, faithlessness. But third and finally, God is faithful, but we shouldn't push Him. Sometimes God works in spite of people. You know, God was good to Israel on that day, but it was in spite of its king. Yes, God delivered through Jonathan, but how much better if God could have delivered through His, his anointed king, Saul? How much better for the nation? How much better example could it have been? You know, maybe in, in your family, the father is doing wrong. He's sinful or he's faithless. And the family is suffering because of his sinfulness or his faithfulness, faithlessness. Then one day, mom decides to get down on her knees and pray. And the Lord blesses the family on behalf of her faith. And that's a wonderful thing, but how much better if dad could have led the family into God's blessing. Pastor is faithless or sinful and the church is suffering. And then one day, a person in the congregation decides to get on their knees and pray daily for their church. And the church is blessed. And that's a wonderful thing. But how much better if the pastor could have been the one to lead that church into faithfulness, into blessing. Saul should have been the one to lead the charge that day in Michmash. Saul should have shown the nation what it is to be a godly leader. Saul should have been the tool through which God drove the Philistines out of the land. God's will was done. God still did great things. But how much better if the king had been the instrument of God's deliverance? 
know, God is faithful, but don't push him. Don't think, Father, that, okay, well, I'll just do my thing and trust my wife's obedience and faithfulness to bless our family. Or, okay, Pastor, me, I'll just remain in sin and faithlessness and trust that the Lord will bless because of others in the congregation. No. How much better? Don't push the Lord. Don't push His patience. Don't push His will. Now, there's not one person in this room today that doesn't need to hear this message or learn from the example of Jonathan, regardless of our level of faith, regardless of our obedience to the Lord. We all need to hear it. Jonathan was a man willing to step out and to claim what God had promised. And the question is, we close. What could God do in and through us in this world if only we were willing to step out and do the same? Let's close in prayer.